Uh, we're going to look at one of the great stories of the Exodus out of the Old Testament. And as I as we'll look at in a moment, uh, this is one of the most repeated and referred to stories out of that wilderness experience in all the rest of the Bible. So we know it's significant. It's one that you've heard if you are someone who grew up going to Bible class, Sunday school, you've heard this all your life. Let's be standing, please, as we hear once again the story of Moses bringing water from the rock. The whole Israelite community set out from the desert of sin, traveling from place to place as the Lord commanded. They camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. So they quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. Moses replied, why do you quarrel with me? And why do you put the Lord to the test? But the people were thirsty for water there, and they grumbled against Moses. They said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to make us and our children and livestock die of thirst? Then Moses cried out to the Lord, what am I to do with these people? They are almost ready to stone me. The Lord answered Moses, walk on ahead of the people. Take with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. I will stand there before you by the rock at Horeb. Strike the rock, and water will come out of it for the people to drink. So Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the place Massah and Meribah, because the Israelites quarreled, and because they tested the Lord, saying, is the Lord among us or not? May God bless the reading of his word. Have visited the lands that are described in the Bible? Show of hands. How many of you have actually walked around in the lands that are described in the Bible? We've got a problem. The problem is the vast majority of you can't remember where you've been. Let me remind you that this little story we just read happened when the children of Israel were wandering around in the wilderness or the desert of sin. Wandering around in the wilderness of sin. Now I want to ask my question again. How many of you have walked around in the same places that the Israelites have? There you go. That's really the point of all of these stories that we read, that we've been to these same places, that we are people just like they were people, they were people just like we are people, and they had some of the same struggles and the, the same issues, and we can relate to them. Now, actually, the wilderness of sin has nothing to do with our English word sin, meaning evil or wrongdoing or disobedience. Actually, if we were to talk about a wilderness in which sinning was going on, it would be the wilderness of Katak, all right? But this is the wilderness of sin or the wilderness of seen, if we want to say it like they would have said it. And it really describes the land. It's a wilderness of clay, a wilderness of sand, a wilderness of cliffs. 
And that word sin is, is closely tied to the word that we come to know very well just a little later in the story, Sinai. S-I-N-S-I-N-A-I. So those two words. So it's really kind of an accident of language that this wilderness comes to be known as we know it as the wilderness of sin. But it's a good accident. Because if we will go back and walk around in this wilderness with them, we'll find out that what happened there is of great significance to us too. And that we truly have been in this place. When the Israelites were walking around in the wilderness here, they have been out of Egypt about two months or so. And already they've encountered several crises. The first one they encountered was as they were leaving, they got pinned up against the Red Sea, which really isn't the Red Sea either. You know, we just get into all kinds of trouble translating, don't we? It's the Reed Sea or the Yom Suth. Anyway, they were pinned up against this body of water and they, they couldn't go across it because it was water. And they looked up and here comes all the, the, the Egyptian army, the greatest army in the world of that day. And here they are, a ragtag bunch of ex-slaves with very few weapons, certainly no sophisticated weapons. And that was a crisis. Later on after that, they were in a land where there was water, but the water was very brackish and bitter. And they couldn't drink it. That was a crisis. And then later on after that, they ran out of food. Here they were out here in the desert, and there's like thousands of people, some estimates even hundreds of thousands of people traveling through this wilderness. There's nothing to eat. That's a crisis. But this crisis is probably, (laughs) if you could rate them, it certainly rates right up there at the top. Because at this time, in the wilderness of sin, they're out of water. There is not a drop of water to be found. Now, that is a legitimate crisis, wouldn't you think? Uh, I've never experienced that kind of thirst. I've been thirsty before, and sometimes I've had to delay when I go get something to drink. I can't get right to it, but I know it's there. I know I'm going to get there. I know I'm not going to die before I can finally get some water. I've had my mouth feel kind of dry and cottony, you know how it gets, but I've never really had it just start cracking open and, and, and feeling the, the effects of dehydration. But these people were beginning to experience that. And they panicked. And they ran to Moses and said, what are you going to do about this, Moses? You know, getting out here was this was all your idea to begin with. And did you just bring us out of Egypt so that we can all come out here and us and our kids? Now, talk about panic. It's one thing if I'm thirsty, but if I've got little kids or grandkids with me and they're thirsty... And I'm worried about them getting a drink of water and whether or not they're going to survive. So you can imagine how panicky they were. And they go to Moses and say, you got to do something about this. Well, Moses turns to God and he says, what am I going to do? The people are ready to kill me. They're so upset about what's going on and so scared about this crisis. Well, God once again Meets the need, doesn't he? He says, Moses, here's what you're going to do. You go and you get some of the leaders of the people, some of the elders, and you take them with you, and before you go, pick up that staff 
that you've been carrying around, that you know, shepherd's staff rod that you had, the same one that you struck the Nile with. It's interesting that that little detail is put in there because whenever Moses back in Egypt had struck the Nile with his staff, that water became undrinkable. But now he's supposed to go and take this staff and do something with it that will provide water for the people here in this wilderness area. So he says, now you take out and you head toward Horeb over here, which is Mount Sinai, and I'm going to meet you on a rock out there. Now, I, I, that's another, this, this story has a lot of little details. Sometimes we kind of just read over because we don't know how to visualize those and don't really know what's going on there. We get the general gist of the story, but I'd like to know how God was sitting on this rock. But he, he was supposed to be on the rock to show it to Moses. This is the place. Here it is. So Moses gets his elders and he heads out. He's got his staff and they're walking along and they come to a big cliff or to something and there's some kind of manifestation of God and Moses knows that that's the rock he's supposed to hit. So he takes his staff and whacks it and water just starts flowing out. Enough water for thousands, for hundreds of thousands of people. And once again, God has come through. Once again, the crisis is over. Now, what is really interesting about this is, if that had happened to me, I think I would have been so overjoyed that I would have started calling this place something like, Miraculous Waters from God, or Cool Spring Water that quenches my thirst. You know, I don't, what would you name this place? Would, that, that God had met this great need and this water was just pouring out of this rock so fast that it could, could meet the thirst of this huge multitude of people. You know they were jumping up and down. You know that they were singing. You know they were shouting. So what did they name this place? Well, you read it. Moses gives it two different names. One is Massah, which means testing, proving, can mean tempting. And the other name he gives to it is Meribah, which means quarreling, arguing, fighting. Hmm. That's interesting, isn't it? That it was that attitude that happened before the miracle that was most to be remembered. And I mentioned that it is this incident that is, I don't know, I, sometimes I get up here and start thinking, you really should have run that reference. But I know that this incident is referred to at least 12 or 13 times in the rest of Scripture. And it may be, other than perhaps the Ten Commandments or perhaps the crossing of the Red Sea, it could be the most referred to event in all of the Exodus. And it's referred to as the time when Israel got angry and tested the Lord. If you like the book of Hebrews in the New Testament, if you're playing that back through your mind, you know that this is one of the main texts that's used in the book of Hebrews is about this very event about how the people tested God in the wilderness. The psalm that we just read, Psalm 95, we only read the fun part. 
because it takes a dark turn. If you look at the end of Psalm 95, it's all about how in, the, in this area of Massah and Meribah, the people tested God and God got really mad at them. And then even Jesus himself talked about this story. That happened whenever he was being tempted by Satan. And there he pulls out this story and says, have you thought about this? Well, what is it about this story that is so significant? What is it that makes it important enough that it gets talked about all the rest of the way through Scripture? What is it that is about this story that makes it a place where you and I have probably been too? And where we've struggled with some of the same things that these people were struggling with. Well, what I want to do is to look at three different ways that this story is a crisis. But not so much just a crisis that the people are out of water. It's really a crisis of faith. In this story, our faith is pulled out and held out there and turned around and looked at and examined under a very bright light. And to be quite honest, in the wilderness of sin, my faith sometimes doesn't come out looking very good. Because the light of this story shows some flaws in it. One thing about this story is it tells us about the crisis of faith and memory. It it juxtaposes faith and memory. And memory is a vital element of faith. In our Wednesday night uh, session, we've been studying forgiveness. And it's interesting how much memory plays a role in in forgiveness. Uh, we, We usually say forgive and forget. It doesn't work. Sorry, can't do it. Well, what you really need to do is forgive and remember well and remember in a godly way. And let your memory actually provide a way to forgive and to, to actually bring the healing power of grace. But, but that's on Wednesday nights. We're doing that. <laughs> but, but here we find that memory has a lot to do with faith as well. And the Israelites are not making much of a connection there. For example, we just mentioned how many crises they'd been through in the last two months after they'd left Egypt. Crisis number one, they're pinned up against the the Red Sea. Here comes the Egyptian army. They can't go forward. They can't go back. They're just going to stand there and be slaughtered. What can they do? Does God help? Now, you've been here before, surely. You've been in this. Okay. Yeah. What happens? He sends a wind that blows all night, and the the water just stacks up against itself, and the the ground is dry ground, and the people just go out on across the sea on dry ground. And then here comes the Egyptian army. They get there and go, wow, look at that. Never seen that before. They made it across. We'll make it across. They start going into it, and what happens? Crash. It all comes back in. And they're out of a situation that they thought they would never get out of. They thought they were dead. They thought it was all over. And now they're on the other side of the sea, safe and sound. Crisis two was when they get over there and they find out that the water to drink is very brackish and bitter. 
And yet God instructs Moses on how to take care of that, and the water suddenly becomes wonderful, fresh. And then the third one is when they run out of food. And they start complaining, what are we going to do? We can't eat. Here we are, thousands of us in a desert, in a wilderness. What were we thinking coming out here and not bringing enough food? We're out of food. What are we going to do? And through Moses, God announces that in the evening, quail are going to start flying over, and then all of a sudden, boom, they're just going to fall on the ground. Uh, that doesn't happen with me when I've got a shotgun in my hand. <laughs> Not many of them fall on the ground. But they're all just going to fly over, and they're just going to fall on the ground, and you just go out and pick up all you need. And then when you get up in the morning, you're going to look out there, and there's going to be this substance all over the ground like bread. They started calling it manna or mana, which means, what's that? You know, because that's what they said when they opened the tent and they looked at it and said, mana, what's that? And they go out and you're supposed to go pick up what you need. Only pick up what you need for today. And trust me, it'll be there tomorrow. And even though some of the people start trying to keep a little extra, what happens to it? Yeah, it spoils, yeah, it rots and all. But on the sixth day, since they couldn't go out on the seventh day, they could get twice as much and it wouldn't spoil. Wow. Now that's a deal, isn't it? You would think in two months, going through all of that, that when they run into another crisis, what would they say? God will provide. But they didn't. Because faith and memory just didn't work together for them. They could only think of now. And God had to do it now. Their only God they knew was the God of now. And I have to tell you, I am as guilty of that sometimes as those people were too. How many times has God gotten me out of trouble? How many times has he come and picked me back up? How many times has he said, we're just going to forget that that ever happened, okay? You're still okay with me. Let's keep going and let's not do that anymore. How many times has he, has he lifted my spirits when I've been so down? How many times is it going to take until I really believe that he is here and he will do it? I'm not going to be like the Israelites. Because if God isn't doing it right now, then they start saying, well, where is God? Is God among us or not? We can't just serve a God of now. We've got to serve a God who's been with us all our lives. Has worked with us has blessed us, and our faith comes from those memories and knowing all the times he's been there for us and trusting that even though I can't see it, he's here now. Which brings up the second one. The second point about faith in this situation is that this story brings into juxtaposition the whole idea of faith or sight. Which one do we want to live by? By what we believe or what we can see? I want so badly for God to prove himself to me. Come on, God, just show me something, and then I'll believe. Now, this is where the story of Jesus that we referred to a moment ago gets woven into this. Because do you remember whenever Satan was tempting Jesus after Jesus had fasted for 40 days in the wilderness. There's wilderness again. How about that? When Satan was tempting him, one of the temptations was, you know what? If you're the son of God, why don't you just show these people? Do you realize how many people will be excited about you 
if you'll just prove yourself to them. Go up here and stand on top of the temple and just jump off. Because Scripture says that the angels will be sent by God to come and catch you before you hit the ground. Prove it. Jesus says, quoting from Deuteronomy, that's referring to this same story. It's written in Scripture, you shall not test the Lord your God. It's not about what we can see. It's, what, it's about what we believe. I don't know what's wrong with God proving himself. You know, I, I want to see that. I, I, I like to hear stories about that. I want to I know that God is really working because here is tangible proof. And yet this story tells us that God treasures our faith. That it is our faith that makes us whole. It is our faith that makes us righteous. That it is indeed our faith that saves us. I want proof. I want sight. God says, believe. And finally, this story challenges our whole idea of faith and control. Do we trust God, believe in God, or do we want to control God? After all, I have to ask myself a question. What good is a God who doesn't give me what I want? What good is a God who doesn't respond to me when I tell him what I need? Do I truly honor and trust God because of who he is or for what I can get? Do I base my loyalty to him on how well he's taking care of me? Or do I base my loyalty on him by who he is, the creator of the universe, that he is God and I am not, that he is the creator, I am the creation. Therefore, it is only natural and right that I exalt him and lift him up. It is only natural and right that I would worship him, that I would trust him. I don't follow him just for what I'm going to get out of it. And yet this story there in the desert challenges that kind of faith and says, Tommy, that's not what God is asking of you. He's not a God to be controlled. Because I want to tell you something. If I can control God, God's too little to be my God. I need a bigger God than that. We come to this story and learn that as we wander through the wilderness of sin, that things will not always go just the way that we expect them to, but that we keep walking by faith, and that by faith we know and we trust and we believe that God is here, that he is truly among us, and that we are his. Let's stand and sing.